This is Shannon Morgan, and you are listening to Episode 3 of Sound Mind, a place to openly discuss the struggles in our minds, including mental health, trauma, addiction, and more. I am not a counselor, and this podcast is not meant to replace professional therapy. More like somewhere you can go to find connection and learn about how other people's experiences can aid in your own journey. Speaking of which, I work in the field of behavioral health as a peer and youth support specialist. Working with both adults and children, I share my lived experience with mental illness, trauma, and addiction in order to connect with clients and help them see that they are not alone. Helping them to share their own story, to set goals, build hope, and live more self-directed, purpose-filled lives, which is a spirit I'm bringing to the show. The website for Sound Mind is soundmindpodcast.com. There you'll find links to social media and learn more about guests. And you can also interact with episodes by leaving comments or sending an email. And I would love to hear from you, especially if you would like to be a guest on the show or you have a reaction to an episode. Now, on to today's guest. Mike Winslow is a self-described 50-year-old man-child with aspirations of being a mall Santa. I mean, who doesn't have that aspiration? Until that dream is realized, he works in behavioral health as a peer support specialist, where he uses his life experience to help others find and walk their path of recovery. Mike is a foodie, a grandfather, and a gardener who has lived with mental illness since he was a small child, not receiving a proper mental health diagnosis until he was almost 40. He's a suicide survivor multiple times over, which leaves him and everyone who knows him grateful that he's alive. And with that, let's meet Mike. How you doing? I am alive. <laughs> <laughs> one of those days? Uh, one of those weeks. Yeah. Car trouble, you know. <laughs> yeah, you had just about every bad thing that could possibly go wrong, go wrong. Well, not quite everything and knock on wood. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, shut up, Shannon. Don't jinx me. It can always be worse. And that is not me challenging the universe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, you ready to get started? I am. Cool beans. So, Mike, what excites you most about being alive? Well, you know, it beats the alternative. Uh, I'm actually a suicide survivor. And so it means for me, it's a lot less about excitement to be alive than just the gratitude that I have for still being alive. Yeah, I suppose that would definitely um, put a shine on things. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you really want to look at it a little bit differently with some perspective, it gives me an opportunity to kind of give back as well. Well, that's good. And what ways do you give back? Um, just with helping others as much as I can. And it kind of is what led me to do the job. Yeah. Mike is a peer support specialist like myself, yep. which, which is a good job in which you get to help other people who live with mental illness um, by sharing your story and how you overcame obstacles um, and the hope that it kind of inspires um, those folks to, uh, or not even inspire, but kind of reduce the stigma so that they don't feel so stuck and know, okay, this person did it so I can do it too. Yep. If I can make it, you can too. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike, what kind of childhood did you have? I mean, it started out uh, as, you know, your typical nuclear family, but, you know, shit fell apart pretty quick. Yeah. Um, when my folks figured out that they couldn't make sense out of their relationship with each other, um, dad left, mom got sick. And before I knew it, mom and I were in Alaska. And so we wound up actually living with my grandparents at the time. And that was when I was seven. Okay. 
when I was about eight, mom slipped into a coma right in front of my eyes, and it was quite the quite the roller coaster ride from there. Did she um, have an illness that made her? Was it sudden or? Um, really what it was is I blame religion and here's why I don't blame all religion, just one specifically in this case, Christian science, they don't believe in medication. When mom was being treated, she was on a very high dose of prednisone. Christian science does not believe in medication at all. And so when mom converted, because her mother was Christian scientist and had kind of talked her into it, uh, mom went cold turkey off the prednisone and that's why she wound up in the coma. Oh, wow. That must have been really Yeah, when she came out, she was not the same person. Mm. And so she came out of the coma and was pretty quickly whisked away into a, um, a nursing home. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, they wanted to keep me involved in her life. And, 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 and you know... I understand the sentiment of it. What they didn't realize is that pushing me into that just basically made me relive that moment of her slipping into the coma every week when we would go visit her. Yeah. So my childhood was spent reliving the same trauma over and over and over again. Wow. Until I was about 11. And then, you know, I, I kind of became, I, my role in life changed. I became, I went from being the kid that everybody wanted to the one that nobody could handle. Okay. Because my ADHD symptoms kicked in pretty quick about the same time as, um, my mother's slip into the coma. And so that started escalating quite a bit. No. And, and of course, you know, the family didn't know what ADHD was. I didn't know what ADHD was. You know, here I am. The guy that was living with it had no clue. But, uh, yeah, so (laughs) that made life pretty uh, interesting. And then once I was 11, I started getting bounced back and forth from family member to family member to family member because nobody could actually handle me for more than about a year. Period of time that you're going through this, ADHD wasn't a prevalent thing. It wasn't a household name. No, no, it really wasn't. I mean, you know, they had hyperactivity, but, you know, that was kind of, you know, they really saw those of us with, you know, hyperactivity of any sort as problem kids. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that kind of ties into the one that everybody wanted switching to the one that nobody could handle. Nobody could handle me because I couldn't even handle myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had a very short attention span, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of an old joke. How many kids with ADHD does it take to change a light bulb? Let's go ride bikes. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> right. But, you know, and, and, you know, my mental health also stems from other traumas as well, because, you know, my family was trying to do the right thing and, and, you know, get me involved in certain things. And so they got me involved in big brothers. You remember the big brothers, big sisters yeah, program. It's yeah. still kind of an active thing, but you know what? They do a whole lot better job vetting now than they did back in the late seventies. Okay. Uh, when I was eight years old, they got me involved in big brothers and the big brother that I was paired up with was an active pedophile and he groomed and abused me between the ages of eight and 11. Oh man. Sorry. Mm -hmm. These are all just, you know, every piece of this story is just a contributing factor to the messed up person that you're speaking to now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've always seen you as a, just a little ball of light and happiness. (laughs) Uh, There's actually a lot of reason behind that. Yeah. My, my, my great purpose in life is to, is to remind people of the importance of play. I mean, Mm -hmm. when we're kids, the way that we learn, we don't learn so much in the classroom as we do on the playground. Yeah. 
playing is a way that we learn and the way that we retain. I mean, you know, teachers incorporate games as a form of learning. There's a reason it resonates better with us. And so I think that when, once we come into adulthood, we tend to forget that we all get, you know, about the time that we hit high school, we start getting really serious about everything. And we forget that playing is actually more important than that, than that hoity toity nonsense that gives us a stuffed shirt and a false sense of superiority. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I never wanted to be one of those um, stuffed shirt kind of people. I don't think it's in my nature though. I tried to go to college. Well, I went to college. <laughs> I had a blast in college. <laughs> that was super fun. But that's when I got diagnosed ADHD was in college is the first time. Cause I, I mean, I went from high school, which I, you know, mm-hmm. kind of got through because they threatened to take me out of drama club and told me if I didn't improve mm-hmm. my grades that I couldn't do drama club anymore. And so then I started getting, you know, straight A's cause I really like drama club. But then I went from that to being um, a housewife basically for seven years. And so, you know, you you can hide a lot of mental illness or at least not understand that you have a mental illness to the extent that you do at a young age, um, right. being a housewife. And, uh, and then when I went to college after my divorce, uh, I would notice that I couldn't take tests because if someone was tapping their pencil or a door closed mm. or there's any kind of noise at all, it threw me off. And I would forget everything. No, I totally get that. Have you ever been one of those kids that would sit and, you know, the little rays of sunshine that would come in through the window and all of a sudden you see all the dust particles in the air and you get distracted by that? Uh, Yeah. That was me. (laughs) All the time. Try to make shapes out of them. and (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, hey, cloud formations, but dust. (laughs) Yeah, I was really easily distracted. And they they told me I was ADHD. And I was more like, what? I don't have ADHD. And then um, I got on the medication for it. And my whole like world changed in terms of being able to focus and helped a lot. I wasn't officially diagnosed until I was almost 40. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was uh, 27. So it does, it does make it, the diagnosis does help because it gives you a framework to build, you know, to build around and to study. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily change who you are as much as it gives you the ability to have some additional tools that you didn't before. Yeah. It helps you interpret some of your behaviors that sometimes Mm -hmm. don't even make sense to yourself that you're doing. It's like, why did I just blurt this out? You know, or why did I just, you know, <laughs> why did I just jump on Impulse this control. Life? It's part of the disorder. Yeah, it really is. Like say some stupid shit. And then you're like, why did I say that? Like, I'm really embarrassed, but you already said it. Oh my God, it. was that my outside voice? Yeah. And then it makes you act out more because you just acted out. And so it makes you act out more because you'd be more outlandish to draw attention away from the stupid thing you just did or said. Right. (laughs) Oh my God. That is so true. I would honestly, you're right. Because, you know, I would do something that would distract everybody. And then I was like, Oh shit. And so I do something else that was even more distractive. Uh I actually got sent home from school in the third grade. And to this day, I have no idea what the hell I did wrong. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you remember it. That's a long time ago. (laughs) No, that's the only part of it that I remember is that my grandmother came to pick me up from school and she was pissed. Yeah. Yeah, I got, um, I was really smart. Um, still, well, I'm not was, I'm still a pretty smart person. So I can make it through school and I'm good at building relationships because I'm really good with empathy and connection. Um, so I'm good at building and keeping relationships, but I do like, they excuse a lot of other behaviors because mm-hmm. I've managed to build that connection. The keeping of relationships was always a struggle for me. And I think that's because my relationships have always been kind of transient to begin with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was kind of a formative thing, even when I was a kid. 
my dad left when I was seven. Um, and from that point on, I mean, the longest time that I had ever stayed anywhere was about four years. Well, mm-hmm. translate that to, you know, Mike at 50 realizing and looking back and reflecting upon his life and going, oh shit, you know what? Most of my relationships died about four years. Yeah. All, all of my long-term relationships have not survived past four years uh, with the exception of the current one. And I think part of that is just, you know, A, my awareness and B, she's completely awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Bailey is awesome. She really is. Yeah. I, um, I used to be good at keeping, maintaining relationships, but um, lately I've just kind of disengaged and backed myself away from, not lately, I guess it's been since I was assaulted three years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe even it started earlier than that, but I noticed I started pushing people away. Um, And it's hard. It's hard when you have trauma and trying to explain it to someone and then, and then take care of them as they try to take care of you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does, because um, yeah. I tend to do that as well. And and it's interesting because when I'm pushing people away is usually when my depression is is in high gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to explain depression. I mean, because people get depression as a concept, like maybe they've gone through an episode of depression or so. People understand but, feeling sad. They don't yeah. really understand depression. I live with the shit and I don't understand it most of the time. Yeah, I don't associate your depression with sadness. I I associate it with lethargy. With just a total unplugging, uh, no energy to do anything, mm-hmm. um, constant self-doubt, constant negative thinking. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and just uh, for me, at least, that's how that's how it, it creeps its way in. I notice I like even gardening when I love gardening. Everyone who knows me, if you ask them what's my favorite thing, they'll say her kids and gardening. Um, yeah. And I'll well, gardening to, is definitely my uh, happy place. Yeah. Yeah. So I, now I know in the summer what, that I'm starting to get depressed cause I, I don't want to go outside yep. and, and there doesn't even have to be a catalyst or like an event didn't happen to cause me to be depressed. My brain just switches it on. Mm-hmm. That's the part that a lot of people really don't understand. Yeah. It's like, what do you have to be depressed about? Oh, geez. Okay. How much time do you have? Yeah. You know, let's look at the uh, lifetime of trauma, both self-inflicted and not, mm-hmm. um, as well as, you know, cause my depression is the best way to describe it is I'm suicidal. Mm-hmm. Every single day that thought crosses my mind. It doesn't matter how, how well I'm doing. Um, those thoughts infiltrate my brain literally every day. Mm-hmm. You know, on my good days, I think about killing myself. On my bad days, I'm actively trying to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I struggle with those thoughts too. And and they are always really confusing because like I, I don't want to die. Like I, mm-hmm. have a, I have a family, I have children, I have hobbies that I like. I like my job. I mean, there's no, mm-hmm. it just, it just comes and it just takes over and it's really frustrating. Frustrating would be a good, another word like other than sad. Uh-huh. I don't really get sad. I just get angry and, and tired, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, angry that well, I, my life that I was doing just fine, clicking along and kicking ass and taking names. And all of a sudden depression comes and wipes out all the progress I made. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, some of the, some of the stuff that, that happens to us when we're kids will linger, you know, throughout, will resonate and linger throughout our lives. Because, uh-huh. you know, before I was even a tween, I had a conversation with somebody that I loved and respected and looked up to, and they basically called me worthless. And mm. that 
you know, once that happened, it stuck in my head. I was already blaming myself for, you know, the, dis- the disillusion of my parents' uh, marriage. And so that just kind of tied right into that narrative really well. And so I had that particular, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Cause it was like on repeat. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Oh yeah. Just a cycle, like repetitive thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the worst. I mean, someone can tell you, oh, it's not like that, or you're not responsible, or they can try to talk sense and sense into you, so to say. Um, but it they doesn't work because it doesn't yeah. feel true. It might be true, but it doesn't feel mm-hmm. true. Right. Like my mind won't let me accept that, that realm of, of, of possibility. Right. When I'm depressed. Uh, on an intellectual level, I know my awesome. On an emotional level, not always. Yeah, and it makes you overlook the things that are that are awesome about you, or it makes you start to doubt them. Like even with this podcast, like I don't know why I'm doing this podcast. Nobody's gonna listen to it. I'm putting all this time into it, and and I, I mean, I start out being really excited, and then all of a sudden, boom, this mm-hmm. cloud is over my head, and it makes it so hard to do anything, like any progress at all, because I'm just that funk is there. It's kind of like the gardening hobby. You're not doing this for anybody else. You're doing this for you. And if you're getting something out of it, then it's a success. Oh, well, sure. Like I know that intellectually to be true. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that's true, but I don't feel it. Mm-hmm. when I'm getting depressed or, you know, or when I have to, sometimes oh, yeah. I'm not even in major depression where I'm, it can be just like a period of days that I get like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's true of everyone. I don't know. I don't live in other people's bodies, but for me, right. depression is insidious. I mean, I have bipolar one, um, but more than mania, I struggle with the depression and it's re- treatment resistant depression. So I've been on just about every medication Same. known to man and none of them work on me. I mean, they'll work for a couple of weeks and they stop working. So for me, it's even more important to do self-care and to, and to monitor my thoughts and change my thought patterns. Even though it doesn't feel true, I need to say things like you just said about the podcast. Like, it doesn't matter if anybody listens to it. I was doing this for myself. Like, this is my project for me. And people do listen to it. So I don't know why I, I get all... Go off the rails. But I do. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's good to have people in my life that I can say, hey, I'm going off the rails today. And they can help me by here are the thought patterns. This is how you need to change your thought patterns. And that's kind of... That, that ties into one of your uh, other questions that you had asked me, actually. Um, like you, mine's very treatment resistant. And a lot of this because of the narrative that runs inside my head and it turns into the echo chamber of self-loathing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had much more success utilizing my personal support network mm-hmm. to find my path to recovery than I have professional supports. Mm-hmm. How, how often have you tried? I mean, is it a long time ago you tried it therapy, for instance, and it didn't work? Or have you tried it a lot off, on and off throughout your life? On and off throughout my life. And mm-hmm. again, really, it's it's much more friends and chosen family than, than anything else. Um, because at some point in time, I realized that I'm just a job to this person. There's no investment. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true, though. Like, I don't see my clients as just a job. No, I get that. And I'm kind of the same way, but it doesn't change that from how it resonates inside my own head. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it it really sucks because, you know, the stuff that you convince yourself of um, really becomes so much more what, what turns into your truth, no matter how much of a fallacy it really is. Yeah. 
And it's hard to find a therapist you can connect with. I'll say that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I found I, therapists that I connected with, but you know, for one reason or another, the relationship doesn't last long. Again, most of my mm-hmm. relationships are relatively um, transient. Yeah. Whether it's, it's a, professional or personal. And the medication, do you take, try to take medication consistently or are you like, hey, I'm done with medication? You know what? That's actually kind of an interesting conversation. A lot of the times the medications, when I find a medication combination that actually works really well, I'll stay on that for as long as I possibly can. But ultimately, because I quit seeing the doctor, I quit seeing the med manager, what have you, all of a sudden I'm back to square one because I'm no longer on medications and you know what med roulette can be like, mm-hmm. you know, once you go off that medication combination that works really well, you're back to ground zero trying to find another combination that works really well. Yeah. So you're saying that you go off the meds that work really well because you stop seeing that med manager and then it's a while in between med managers before you can try those medications again or get on something well, else. Well, and I look at my current situation. I'm, I'm currently without insurance. And so, you know, trying to mm-hmm. find medication and someone who will prescribe for you when you don't even have the ability to afford a doctor's visit. Yeah, there are some good programs in um, like health and welfare has a good program I, I used to be on uh, for people who have severe persistent mental illness mm-hmm. um, that they give you the meds. I'll have to try to find that and give and give you that information because. It's, oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, because cool. I'm actually contemplating signing up for Medicaid. You should sign up for Medicaid. See if I actually qualify because, you know. I, I, I quote unquote qualified for affordable care act, but the amount of money that they were qualifying me for still left it to where it was going to be about 500 bucks a month out of pocket for insurance. And that's just to have the bare bones minimum insurance that doesn't pay for anything. Yeah. And then I get the, uh, what's the word? The, the opportunity to pay $500 a month. Yeah. <laughs> the privilege of having health care for five. Yeah, exactly. You have the privilege of paying a bunch of money for something you can't use. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. It's horrible. <laughs> but it's, it you kind of really have is. to laugh after a while. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, here in, here in the United States, it's absolutely terrible. And I think Idaho is one of the worst states about it, too. So, mm-hmm. oh, you know, it, it's abysmal throughout the nation and even more so here. Yeah, Idaho is the 49th uh, worst state in the union for health of mental health care. <laughs> so that just puts it right on par with everything else for wages, for education. Um. <laughs> yeah, but it's so pretty. <laughs> Look at the nature. Yay, I get to stare at really pretty mountains while I kill myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have anxiety also, right? Mm-hmm. How does anxiety express itself in your life? So it walks hand in hand with my depression, but it actually handles itself on kind of an exponential rate. For every step of increase in my depression level, it's tenfold for the anxiety. So, you know, my, my depression's at a two, my anxiety's at a 20. Mm-hmm. And my depression's at a three, my anxiety is at a 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it yeah. literally increases like that. So when I have my depression under control, kind of by default, it kind of keeps the anxiety under control, but there's always that, that, that impending sense of doom of shit, when's the hammer going to fall and I'm going to be back in the same position I was seven years ago kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. 
you know, I've been pretty lucky so far. This is one of my longer stretches of not having to deal with the deep depression because it took me over two years to come back out of it the last time. Yeah. I think I've been um, pretty consistently depressed for three years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, no, I've that had, sounds about right. Yeah, I've had oh, no, like I said, my, my, my path out of it was two years. My path down into it was three. So, I mean, it was a five-year process. Yeah, it's no joke. It's pretty insidious. Like, a, mm-hmm. man, just having a, a severe mental illness in general is a wild ride. I'm trying well, and to then learn when the about mental health professional that you're working with seems to think, that, oh, well, you're just trying to get out of going to work. No, I'm honestly being honest with you in an effort to try to get out of dying. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I haven't had anybody not believe me. Oh, well, I have. Yeah, I have. Times. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I have plenty of times. And I think a lot of it is um, we expect women to have mental health in our society and men living with mental illness, although the numbers show that men actually suffer more mental illness than women. We just discount women by using mental illness as another tool for it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, a lot of us guys actually suffer from depression in in much more extreme fashions than a lot of women because you don't see a whole lot of women going and shooting up a school. You don't see a whole lot of women committing suicide by cop. You know, this is all shit. That's, that's almost exclusively a male tendency. And when we lose our shit, we lose it bad. And, and some reason or, you know, for some reason or another, we wind up thinking that, well, I'm just going to take out as many people with me as I can. Mm -hmm. It's another toxic masculinity trait, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one of the reasons for the podcast. I want to try to normalize mental health as much as I can. Um, or at least get normalize mental about illness. It. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Illness for a reason. <laughs> yeah. And being able to talk about it, like even with peers, it really does help a lot. Right. And yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's a reason that I do the job. It, it mm-hmm. actually kind of helps keep me recovery minded. Um, yeah without sharing my story and walking that path of recovery and helping other people, uh, my odds of slipping back into that kind of a depression are dramatically increased. So mm-hmm. I, I, I do the job as a self-preservation tactic. Yeah, that makes sense. When it gives you a place that you can talk to people too about your own mental health and it's yeah. benefiting and- them and it's benefiting you. Right. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, so I have mental illness and I talk to people with mental illness about my mental illness. And sometimes that backfires. How so? People will take what you say wrong a lot because we don't hear things the way that the things themselves are. We don't see things the way that the things themselves are. Mm -hmm. We always use our own filter. So I don't see something the way the thing is. I see something the way that I am about the thing. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that at work it backfires or in your personal life it backfires? Yes. <laughs> in short, both really. So okay. that's, that's why I said it that way. At work it backfires because sometimes the client will, will think that what you're saying isn't what you're really saying and they will infer it. And so they'll call it, contact the company and say, Oh, well they said this. And I said, that's the farthest fucking thing from what I was actually saying. Mm. <laughs> but you know, thanks for assuming. <laughs> yeah. 
I've had, I had something like that happen. I wasn't talking about my mental health. We we're talking about mm-hmm. um, religion or something, and which mm-hmm. I try to avoid talking about at <laughs> work completely. Religion but, and politics. Avoid those things like the plague yeah, with other people with those. mental illness when you're working with them on a professional level. Yeah. So they complained, but the, my, my work was pretty cool about it. They're like, yeah, we know you wouldn't do that. And it was probably misunderstanding. Right. So it's fine. But yeah, it's definitely scary because, you know, by na- in nature of the job, you're talking to people who have mental health um, concerns. And so there's bound to be some conflict and oh, yeah. or miscommunication. Uh, but luckily, I haven't experienced that very much in the four years I've been doing this. It's just that one time. Mm-hmm. So that's been good. Yeah. But a I'm lot only- more in personal relationships. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. A lot more in the personal relationships. Well, again, it's because we put our personal filter on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of my personal relationships have taken my mental illness as something that they have personally done. And I can't say that at the time I didn't foster that. Mm-hmm. You mean you know, like they all- said something that caused you to behave a certain way, so they blame themselves? <laughs> well... <laughs> More like, yeah, they could have said something or done something that that triggered some other response in me. And again, like I said, when when my depression's in full swing, I I tend to be just an utter shit. Really, um, I will say things that aren't necessarily what my true narrative is, but I'll say it because I know it'll hurt them mm-hmm. and drive them away from me. Okay, you know, and and this is something that I haven't really admitted before, so. <laughs> Well, you're sabotaging your close relationships because it allows you to be more depressed. It creates more Mm -hmm. of a barrier around yourself. Exactly. Uh, It it insulates me from anyone actually being able to try to get through and help me. Yeah. See, I'm more of, I just won't answer your phone calls or texts anymore. And we'll have a conversation about it. (laughs) Because it it, it gets exhausting. I'll tell you to go fuck yourself and and pretty much exactly how I would like to see it happen. Um. (laughs) Yeah, well, I haven't had had that experience. But I have had that where I just, uh, it just gets too exhausting when when they ask, how are you? And Mm -hmm. and just to answer that question, you need to try to answer it truthfully. And then they're like, oh, well, this is how I am. All these amazing things are happening. And I'm going all these amazing places. And I'm doing all this amazing stuff. And buying all these amazing things. And, and I'm just like, Oh, I just, it's exhausting listening to it. And it's exhausting <laughs> taking care of them. Like when they try to take care of me and I end up like, uh, so I just end up not talking to anybody anymore. Oh, they become white. Well, when it gets to that point, they become white noise very fast. Yeah. It, it, it definitely takes way more out of you than it's worth. You know, friendship mm-hmm. is supposed to, you know, add things to you and give you some things. And when you're mm-hmm. depressed, it's hard to get things out of. Well, out that's of kind of another thing that I find interesting because by nature, I'm a helper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that I do the job as well. It helps me when I help other people, mm-hmm. um, it boosts my sense of self, my sense of self-esteem. And, and when you're combating the kind of depression that I deal with, um, that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I do the job for self-preservation because if I didn't do the job, I, I, I know for a fact, it's not an if it's a, when I would slip back into the same the, the, the same depths of despair that I was in before. And, you know, my last major depressive episode, uh, the suicidal behavior, it wasn't just ideation. It was behavior. I was 
actively mm-hmm. working towards ending myself. And, mm-hmm. you know, if I was to be honest with myself and with you and with any and everybody listening, I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive the next one if it happens. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I do this so that I don't have to find out. Yeah. I, I spite the suicidal ideation as well. It's really strong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have, luckily I have children. I don't know what I would do without, like I said, they're my reason not, not to, not to go anywhere when I'm mm-hmm. really depressed. Cause I know that, well, kids who have parents who commit suicide are 50% more likely to commit suicide. Mm, funny. You so, should quote that statistic. Cause guess what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it normalizes it in, in your mind and makes it like acceptable. My dad killed himself when I was 16. My stepmother killed herself when I was 25. I found out about it when I was 30, when my actual mother died. Um, So, I mean, you know, the normalization of suicide is definitely something that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a contributing factor. Yeah. It feeds it. Mm Mm-hmm. Cause it's like, for me, it's detached. It's, it's something, um, well, I mean, yes and no. I'm like, I've had uh, family members try to kill themselves like multiple mm-hmm. times. And so mm-hmm. it's not as detached as it used to be, but it used to be a concept that I felt like, you know, I felt like dying, but then, then things make it more real. And then it's like, Oh, I'm, you know, death is actually going to happen. And that, what will that mean? But when you're hurting, you don't care what it means. You just don't want to hurt anymore. Mm-hmm. Just trying anything you can do to get between you and that feeling. Which again, yep. for me isn't sadness. It's, I mean, sometimes I guess it is, but mostly it's just an, a, 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 it's a large negative emotion that just sits on my chest and won't let me up. Exactly. It's like my arms or my legs move slower. My I think I can't connect my thoughts as well as I usually can. I can't um I can't stay engaged in and doing anything that usually is good for self-care, like you know, crafting or gardening or singing or you know, things that usually keep me happy. I can't do them uh-huh. anymore. I don't want to do them. And when I try to even when I try to make I go outside in the garden, I'll just sit there for four hours and not do anything. Right. <laughs> just trying to will myself to have the energy to do stuff. And you know, that's exhausting. Gardening. You're much more of a flower gardener and I'm much more about, you know, production of food. <laughs> oh, I do food too, but this year, not that much. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, it's also having, has to do with the sun in my, in my yard. <laughs> There's not, it's not a lot of full sun. And most yeah. vegetables need full sun. But, I'm pretty lucky there. My whole front yard is is great exposure, so I'm I'm converting the front yard into a garden. Yeah, and it looks great. I love to see your garden. It's uh got lots of tomatoes. <laughs> oh, I've got a tomato forest. Yeah, and it's it's really more tomato trees than it is tomato plants. <laughs> I know. I, mine are crazy this year. Mine are insane. They're so big. Uh huh. So usually didn't don't get this big, but this year I'm having to cut them back. Because they're falling over on themselves. Right. <laughs> no, next year I'm actually going to put up the cages before I put in the tomatoes. Uh, I, I made the mistake of not getting cages up in time. And so they're all like, you know, sprawling outside of the garden box. Yeah, I put I put the cages up, but they outgrew the cages. Like it didn't take that long. They were spilling over the cages. Mm-hmm. But yeah, normally that stuff just makes me so giddy and I get excited about going and taking care of them. But this year mm-hmm. I've been like, eh. 
<laughs> I'll do it next. I'll do it next week, or I'll do it tomorrow, or and then I never, I never do it, and then it, and then it gets so overwhelming that I don't want to do it, and then gardening becomes a chore rather than being fun. I can relate to that one. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I really do um, attribute my love of gardening to my grandfather. Mm-hmm. He was actually the closest thing to a dad that I had throughout most of my life. Um, my dad wasn't necessarily absent all the time, but there was a lot of animosity between him and my mother's side of the family because of the way things went down between them. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was caught in the middle. I love my mom. I love my grandpa. I love my grandma. I love my dad. And yet my, my grandfather would sit me down and just berate my dad to me, you know, for like an hour, which causes a lot of, you know, internal conflict. How do I resolve that? Yeah. So moving forward a little, mm-hmm. um, I asked a question, how your mental health diagnoses impacts various um, aspects of your life, like financially, professionally, which we kind of talked mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Um, relationships and sexually, and and you are able to answer all of those. Is there any specific one you'd like to talk about? Uh, whichever one you want to touch first. I mean, I'm happy to talk about them all. I'm I'm pretty much an open book. My transparency is is something that I do for a couple of good reasons. One, it weeds out a lot of the people who won't be able to handle me when when shit hits the fan. Yeah. Really, I mean, that's, I think that's part of the reason that I am so transparent is because it just makes it a whole lot easier when when the illness is actually kind of you know running the show rather than me. Yeah, they're ready. They're prepared for it, and they they can handle it. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Here's me in a nutshell, and you know that's kind of one of the reasons that it has been such a struggle for me for the last year and a half. Uh, when I lost somebody very close to me because we had both been through that same darkness mm-hmm. and we'd pulled each other out of that darkness on multiple occasions. Uh, she had a few suicidal um, episodes. I'd had a few. So we understood each other on, on very intimate levels that most people just couldn't. I mean, the reality of it is, is that, you know, unless you've actually been to that point and have actually taken action with it, you're not really going to understand what goes on inside someone's head when they're, when they're there, when it's happening, when they are actively trying to end themselves. Yeah. And that's, so, uh, that's tough. It is. It is. Uh, but, you know, I've been pretty blessed over the last you know, number of years uh, to have some really great people in my life, mm-hmm. yourself included. Well, thanks. And I likewise, you've been a huge help to me, especially after I had my head injury and you took over all my clients uh-huh. at work and allowed me to take some time off to get better. And that was pretty awesome. I, although getting a concussion was pretty cool because I felt like amazing for like a month. Like everything mm-hmm. was great. <laughs> I mean, not physically I didn't, but in my brain, I was like, this is awesome. No problems at all. Like, right. Party. Hey, check it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I remember when you came in to uh, kind of crash the team meeting. Yeah. And, and- 
And it was then that I realized just how extreme everything was that you were faced with and fighting. And it's like, oh shit. Um, Because, you know, your, your online presence was the Shannon that I know and love and have always known. And then all of a sudden you show up and, you know, you can't string five words together without stuttering over three of them. And yeah, I had a really bad stutter and I couldn't keep my thought patterns. I mean, depression was one thing, but this was totally different. I heard physically too, you had no balance. Yeah, it was was crazy is I do have experience in doctors not believing me in that department. Like I would tell them what was going on with me and they would say, well, that's not normal for concussion. I'm like, well, I don't care if it's normal. It's what's happening to me. Like, this is what's like, obviously normal doc. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, check it out. Like, why would I make this up? I'm not trying to get on disability. I have no, my work is giving me time off. I don't have to, you know, Mm -hmm. there's no reason to, to make things up, but yeah, I hate the medical system. I'm, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. I could have a whole podcast about how much I hate healthcare. Oh, right. <laughs> well, and especially mental health care, because mm-hmm. I think even that has even more stigma than regular health care. And, uh, well, you can get like, if you don't have money, you can get a free counselor that's a student that doesn't have any experience. So, I mean, those are available. But if you have a serious mental health condition, I mean, even if you have health insurance, getting mm-hmm. to see an actual experienced psychiatrist or psychologist is next. I mean, I'm my daughter's on a six month waiting list for a med manager and for a psychologist. Six months. Right. And I mean, and, and, the the issues that we were dealing with to get to the point that she needed that kind of help uh-huh. means that we can't wait six months for it. You know, it's not something that we can just, it's not like going on a diet where you can just say, fuck it, I'm going to eat some Twinkies for six months and then I'll go on a diet. It's, it's well, I mean, not, you know, that wouldn't work very well for me because, you know, type two diabetes, but you know. <laughs> right. Well, it's, exactly. So my daughter has type two diabetes of mental health and uh-huh. she needs to get in to see a doctor and we, there are none, none available. So we have to go back to seeing college level, um, students and, and oh, med God, managers. you're training the professional at that point. Yeah, you know? exactly. And it's not something that you want and, for your kid. And when that happens, I mean, honestly, 90% of what you're doing is hoping like hell that they'll actually believe you and listen to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had the best, the best therapist I ever had was actually a student. So I don't want to totally like bag on going to you know, see a student uh, who, cause they're, they're learning all this stuff. If you, if you get a person who was like me in college, mm-hmm. who had to get A's and everything and be the best at everything, no matter what it is, mm-hmm. um, then you're, you're in good hands. But I mean, I've also had some that, I mean, we had one that asked Zoe, she told him that she was bisexual and then they got what they got out mm-hmm. of that is that she's transgender. They asked her, well, how long have you been transgender? Well, uh, were they just not listening? Or? I, I know. Or they I just so out of touch. I mean, this was an older person, so I don't know if they just haven't updated their knowledge of mental health since the 70s or what the deal mm-hmm. was. But uh, it's it's really frustrating when you're having to motivate your kid to go into the doctor in the first place. Well, and it kills me because, you know, I, I, I can count on, you know, I, not necessarily count, but I, I have seen so many instances where things have been rearranged and changed to become the current norm. And people that were there to witness when it happened, mm-hmm. pretend like it's always been that way. A prime example would be the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. You know. Under God wasn't added to the pledge until what was it, 1957? Yeah, or was it 54? I'm trying to remember, but it was because of the whole the, the McCarthy nonsense, the yeah. whole communist threat. Yeah. 
oh, well, the communists are, are atheists. So, so since all communists are atheists, all atheists are communists, which I mean, you know, let's say that's not true, but <laughs> <laughs> let's see how that math works out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they they keep on forgetting that, you know, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Yeah. Well, well, man, I just almost launched into a whole like political diatribe. I'm going to hold, hold myself in because don't want to make that the podcast about politics. Maybe I'll do a little side polit- uh, politic podcast where I just get to rant. That well, because you, you know what, mental health, mental health has been um, dramatically affected by the current political yeah. scene of the United States. Let's face it. it um, I have never in my life seen a nation so divided. Yeah. Honestly. Uh, well, I, I, I saw, I was just thinking about that last night as I was just scrolling through my Facebook feed and like every single post is arguing and it's not like productive arguing. It's like, well, you're just a son of a bitch. Well, you're just a commie or you're just a, you know, like right. not productive, not helpful. <laughs> and, and all Nazi, of them are like that. Snowflake. <laughs> I know, right? Snowflake and well, you're just a dirty liberal and well, I'm actually, I'm not a dirty liberal, but that's okay. If that's what you want to think. I bathe regularly. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any patchouli oil. <laughs> no, no, don't stop the patchouli oil, okay? <laughs> yes. I'm a 21st century hippie. <laughs> <laughs> Don't knock it till you try it, right? That's one way I can keep people away from me. <laughs> See, I, I, well, that funny, it wouldn't work for me because I love patchouli. Um, <laughs> it's it's when people try to use it to disguise body odor. That's a that, that's a story there, you know. Hey, yeah. Um, you know what? Here's a better idea. Just take a shower. That's probably <laughs> why I don't like it. I associate it with that. Hmm. Well, and a lot of that is actually old association. We're talking about association that's like, you know, 40 plus years old, mm-hmm. between 40 and 60 years old, because, you know, patchouli started coming into use really heavily in the U.S. What, back in the 60s with the hippies? Yeah. They're just trying to, you know, mask the smell of pot. Which, why would you want to do something like that? Right? Because pot smells good. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're, we're coming up here towards the end, Mike. Do you have anything that you want to add? Any advice you give someone who has di- been diagnosed recently with mental illness or suspects that they are mentally ill? Um, the first thing I say is that your mental illness does not define you as a person. Mm-hmm. You aren't bipolar. You have bipolar disorder. You aren't ADHD. You have ADHD. A diagnosis is nothing more than the ability to get some extra tools to work on improving yourself that you didn't previously have. Mm -hmm. And what's most important there is be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, most of us, you know, especially those of us with depression really forget that frequently. And it's something that I, it's a mantra that I have inside my head, you know, treat yourself the same way that you would a friend that's coming to you with the same problems that you're facing. That's really good advice. I think so. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. I'm not the best at taking it, but you know, shit, I'm really good at dishing that one out. (laughs) You and me both. It is a constant struggle every day, but then the next day happens and you're there and you get to try all over again. Well, and sometimes I get given the same advice that I give out and then I sit and go, you know, here's an interesting thing. Um, one of my favorite tools to use in peer support, somebody presents me as a problem, somebody presents me as a problem. Yeah. With a problem that they're, that they're faced with and that they're struggling with. I ask them what they would tell a friend of theirs that has the same struggle. Mm 
Yeah, that's a good one. They give me their answer. And usually their answer is something that I would normally tell them if I was presented with it and talking to a friend. I say, you know what? That sounds like pretty good advice. Maybe you should take it. Mm-hmm. it it's it's kind of hard to deny the advice that you're giving when it's literally pointed out to you in black and white. Hey, um, this is good advice. Maybe you should take it. It's yours, but you know, take it and run with it because it's good. Well, it's easier to I've love someone it. else than it is to love yourself sometimes. Uh, more often than not, I would have to say. Yeah. So that's why that question works so well. Cause if, mm-hmm. if you're giving advice to someone you care about, you're going to give them the best, the good stuff. Exactly. <laughs> and then you just turn it inward. I, I do that a lot. I do that with what I, what would I, what would I tell my kids if they asked me about this? And whatever it is, I, I would tell them I, I do. Myself. I know your kids. Um, and the funny thing is, is that I, I, I don't talk to them any differently than I would you. I know they're great, huh? <laughs> your kids are pretty awesome. <laughs> sometimes they're a bit much, but then again, sometimes you're a bit much and sometimes I'm a bit much. Uh-huh. So get it. <laughs> That's why we all get along. Excessive amounts. I, you of know, I really have to think so. Um, but I've been curious as, you know, I'll talk with you on the personal stuff uh, after, after all of this, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, that's uh, all. Do you have any other direct questions for me? No, I got nothing. That was it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. If you want me back, just let me know. I will definitely let you know. Thanks, Mike. All righty. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. <laughs> Bye. Bye.